Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Dean Nelson. Dr. Dean Nelson is the founder and director of the journalism program at Point Loma Nazarene University, founder and host of the annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea, and he has written for major publications such as the New York Times, the Boston Globe, USA Today, and more. He applies the lessons and tactics he has learned in over 40 years of interviewing professionally in his book, Talk to Me. As someone who interviews for this podcast, I couldn't resist the opportunity to interview the interviewer, and we had an enjoyable and insightful chat about the book and its value for not only journalism students, but for anyone who has to acquire information in their daily life. If you live in the San Diego area, stick around to the end for information on some of Dr. Nelson's upcoming book events. All right, so joining us on the phone right now, we have Dean Nelson, author of Talk to Me. And Dean, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. It's great talking with you. Of course. Um, so I have to acknowledge there's a bit of an irony here interviewing the interviewer. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no pressure <laughs> on you. <laughs> so, well, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip the script. I'm gonna put the pressure on you for a second. If you were oh, me, okay. how would you start this interview? Wow, wow, wow! <laughs> Way to put it back on me, man. So, um, I think I would uh, I would look into. Maybe some of the uh, the stuff. I, I assume you've done all your preparation and you've read the book, and knowing that you know you should be totally prepared and and know how I'm going to answer this question. So let me put it back on you. Since you prepared so well, you already know how I'm going to answer this. In what in what way? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this could go so many different ways here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's a no. So uh, I think the way to prepare to interview an interviewer is um, maybe just uh, let them know that they're in good hands and that you're kind of, uh, you're ready for this and this is going to be a a good conversation and people are really going to learn something. So I would, uh, I would probably start there. All right, great. Well, you are in very good hands with us, hopefully. I, I'm hoping we'll get some great nuggets out of this. Um, so in addition to being a journalist, you are the founder and director of the journalism program at Point Loma. So when you wrote this book, did you write this with your journal, journalism students in mind? You know, I, at first I did. Um, I, I wanted uh, to really give them some handles on how to do uh, interviews well, but it was the good people at Harper Collins who helped me broaden that perspective a little and said, you know, let's not just think of uh, journalism students or journalists as an audience for this. Let's think about people who have to talk to other people as part of their, their daily life in addition to journalism. So I was thinking about um human resources people and nurses and social workers and lawyers and um, uh, financial planners and people like that who who have to really get some decent information out of another human being for 
that interaction to be useful. So at first, to answer your question, at first I was thinking of, of just other journalists, not necessarily just my journalism students. Mm -hmm. But then uh, the, the more we dug into it, the more universal a lot of this felt for anybody who talks to other people for a living. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I was going to ask you next, what some of the biggest areas that you see um, your journalism students needing improvement in, in terms of their interview skills are, but I'll yeah. broaden that a little bit. What about journalists in general or people you see interviewing in general? What are the big areas of improvement needed there? I think the um, there are a couple of things that uh, right off the bat is you always have to acknowledge, at least for a, for a journalist, you have to acknowledge that you're probably going to be an intrusion in some way in somebody's life. And so you have to make this conversation um, worthwhile mm -hmm. and, and make it in the interest of the other person. You want to help them get their story out. You want to help the world understand their perspective on things. Um, so the first thing is, uh, even though they might be an intrusion in somebody's life, there's a reason for this intrusion, and if you can make the case, then people are um, are probably more willing to talk. The other thing that I think, especially students, but uh, but, but also um, maybe early career people in any uh, any level, but particularly journalism, uh, are are assuming that people don't really want to talk. And I think it's just the opposite. Mm -hmm. I think if given the opportunity, people really want to tell their stories. They, they want to let others know what they think about stuff. And it's the journalists or others in some of these other areas who are giving them that opportunity. So you have to get over initially some of your misgivings about what you're doing. And then you have to get over uh, probably a misunderstanding of how you think this is going to be uh, received. People people want to talk about themselves, and journalists um, and others who do it well, anyway, give people that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it's really just that initial contact is the biggest thing. I think so. You know, I, I think there are some there are some additional things of uh, ordering your questions properly. You don't want to start out with your hardest question or your, you know, the one that might give the person the most pause. You don't want to start there. You want to build a little rapport. And I, I would say probably another thing that uh, uh, maybe rookies don't um, don't realize is that it's okay to have a little bit of silence in uh, in that interview. It's not okay, I suppose, if you're doing a podcast like this. You know, that's just a dead air thing. But um, but if if you're one on one with somebody and they just kind of pause, uh, it's okay to let that pause linger there for a while. The person might be thinking or might have to, you know, spend a little uh, time trying to articulate what it is they're trying to get across. So I would say that's another thing that a lot of rookie uh, uh, reporters, in particular feel like they've got to rush in and uh, kind of fill in those gaps. And the reality is you don't. Mm. I think we even do that in general conversation, need to fill that silence. I think that's a great point. Yeah, and, and silence sometimes feels awkward, but 
sometimes silence is really profound as well. And so you've got to read that as to uh, which is it. And, um, you know, if, you, if you're reading body language and it's silent and the person is kind of nodding at you like, all right, go on, what's your next question? Then, you know, you got to pick up on that. But, but silence sometimes is just the person trying to formulate uh, something that's sort of pre in, in the pre-articulation mode, mm-hmm. and they've got to wait until it, it, they can hang some language on it. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, the phone interview puts us at a disadvantage there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anything like this or television or radio or anything, yeah, sil- silence is not a good thing. <laughs> Uh, so in addition to your work at the university, you also are the founder of the Writer Symposium by the Sea, where you interview writers about their work. How has that changed your perspective as an interviewer? Is that, has that made it different at all? Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good question. Um, what, I, what I realized by doing these interviews, and these, these interviews are always televised, and they're mm-hmm. always in front of an audience. And so it isn't just a matter of sitting down with somebody and asking a bunch of questions it's there has to be um some movement we're headed somewhere the audience has to remain engaged in some way and what i realized by watching some of the old telecasts of of my early interviews Mm -hmm. is that i just uh i just talked way too much and um my questions were long and complicated and um Sometimes the person I was talking to really had no idea what I was what I was trying to get at, and so uh, that those writers symposium interviews with writers has has helped me uh, scale back the complexity of my questions. Even though you still want to ask open ended questions and get the person talking. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to just fill it with so much of your own thinking. People didn't pay a lot of money to come and sit in the audience to hear me talk. They paid to hear the other person talk. And I think a lot of television and radio uh, interviewers miss this. Um, if you watch, there are there are some interviewers where half of the interview is them talking and trying to look smart. Uh, and that isn't really the point. The point is to try to pull some some human interaction out of this other person. And uh, so that's where the Writer's Symposium has has kind of really helped me. It's it's tightened down my questions. It's made me it's made me interrupt uh, the person uh, less. Uh, it's it's made me a better interviewer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these interview skills that have made you the interviewer you are, um, would you say they're more practical things you've learned over time as opposed to education? Is it more of a mix? Yeah, it's it's kind of a mix because it, uh, are, are you speaking of the writer symposium interviews or the ones I've done as a journalist? Just in general, writer symposium, journalism, everything you've done in your career, essentially. Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's just... I mean, I'm usually really interested in what the person is talking about. If I mm-hmm. if I wasn't, I wouldn't be talking to that person. So I'm usually already kind of interested in the topic, um, and and so what they're talking about are are big ideas typically. Whether whether it's a journalism thing or um, or the writer's symposium thing, and uh, so I'm interested in that. But I'm 
as I think about it and as I try to learn from what I've done, I try to think of, okay, how could I have done that better? How could I have asked that question differently? How could I have drawn this person out more? And then I try to relay what I've learned uh, in that regard to students. Now that isn't that isn't going to be true of all kinds of stories that you do. If you're if you've if you're doing a story about a car accident, you aren't going to really try to reach into somebody's psyche for big ideas. You're just going to try to find out what happened. So it, it depends on the purpose of the interview. But most of the writing I do these days has to do with these kind of broader ideas, bigger themes. Um, uh, stuff that makes you uh, stuff that makes you think more deeply, and so finding uh, ways to get at that kind those kinds of big ideas that's what I really work at now. Mm. So we're at a very interesting point right now in our country in terms of the relationship between the media and the people and the people in power. Uh, just we last are. week we had um, President Trump calling the New York Times the enemy of the people. Right. How have recent comments like that about the media um, being untrustworthy, being fake, have they made your job harder in any way? They, it has for a couple of reasons, but but uh, and and I'll I'll address that in just a second. But mm -hmm. but let's keep in mind this is not new. This, this is not a new thing. This goes back to Alexander Hamilton. This goes back to Thomas Jefferson. This goes. Um, you know, when I was growing up, it was Nixon and Agnew, uh, where Richard Nixon actually said that the Washington Post was the enemy of the people. So this is not a new thing for powerful people to try to shoot the messenger. It's, of course, it's a huge dodge, and it's a, uh, it's a way to distract people and try to sow a little bit of uh, disbelief uh, and lack of credibility. Maybe because of social media, it's it's more prevalent, the, uh, the kind of complaining. So I would say the way it's made our jobs as journalists more difficult is that um, there are a lot of people who believe the president when he says we're the enemies of the people. Uh, and there are a lot of people who believed uh, Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew when they said, um, that the whole Watergate investigation was just a bunch of lies. A lot of people believed that until they found out that it was true. So this is the pressure, I would say, on journalists today, because of the speed and because of uh, social media, is that there's no margin anymore for just getting a fact wrong or rushing something to uh, uh, on, online or uh, on on the air or something like that, we don't have much of a margin to say, oh, okay, we got that fact wrong, so we better, um, you know, we can run a correction or or whatever. One little fact error sets off a, a social media storm of saying, yeah, that that's fake news. You guys just make stuff up. People have, people have gotten facts wrong in the news media since we began doing this. Mm -hmm. likewise, likewise, people have been making things up in the news media since the very beginning. The whole fake news thing, this is not new. This is not a new phenomenon. We've reported on wars that never existed. We've reported on 
crimes that were never committed, uh, murders that never happened. Um, but, but in this particular presidency, it's being made to sound like it's all because we're anti-Trump. And I, I wish people just knew their history a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you do mention in the book that there are four questions that should be asked at the end of an interview. Um, and the one that I could think was the most relevant to this interview is, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course there is. Of course there is. Um, What's one question? Uh, the, 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 the question you should have asked me is, why should anybody want to read this book? All right. So, so I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you why you should read this book. Regardless of the field you're in, there's a very good chance that the work you do involves talking to people. And this book is going to help you know how to do that better so that the interaction you're going to get is more than just an exchange of information, but what you're going to get is a shared humanity. And what I say at the end of this book is that shared humanity sometimes leads to a a real transcendent experience where you just understand something about yourself, about the world, about human interaction that you didn't understand before. And that's simply because you did a better job at talking to another person than you did before. So that's, uh, I don't think this is just for journalists or just for journalism students. This is for anybody who wants to have deeper kind of uh, human interaction. That's great. Uh, So Dean, just one more question for you. Since our primary audience here are teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? That's that's a good one. I think I would have to say my Shakespeare professor. It was a woman named Maxine Crane. And um, I was, all through high school and in my early college days, I would call myself an underachiever. I was uh, not particularly motivated intellectually uh, in any uh, manner. And I took a Shakespeare class from this woman who was so passionate about Shakespeare and so educated and communicated the ideas, excuse me, of, uh, of Shakespeare so well that I, it's almost like I could feel the lights coming on in my brain and in my spirit. And, uh, the more I read Shakespeare, the more I loved it. And, uh, the more her enthusiasm for the topic just kind of got into my pores. I still read Shakespeare. I still think it's the greatest experience is to read Shakespeare. And um, I, and so she was a college professor, and so I would say she was the best. Excellent. That's great. Well, Dean, thank you so much. This has been um, lovely talking about this book. Thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, thank you for your interest. Take of course. care. You too. And good luck with um, everything with the book. You've got some events coming up, right? We do. I've got uh, this Thursday, uh, the 28th of February, at Warwick's Bookstore in La Jolla uh, in San Diego, doing a book event there. Um, anybody in the area, you're welcome to come. And then on April 27th, there's an independent bookstore in uh, San Diego called La Playa, L-A-P-L-A-Y, uh, uh, and they are uh, doing a book event on the 27th of April, and I'll be there for that. Great. That sounds awesome. Good luck with all of that. 
Hey, thank you. Thanks for your interest. Of course. Not a problem. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.